Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're joining with us here today as we continue on in our series, Jesus the King, really just looking at the reign and the rule of Jesus, and really for Lent then, looking at how we are called to respond to him and to recognize him as king and really to follow him with obedience and allegiance. And today I want to begin actually with a quote from Mother Maria of Paris. She was a World War II nun and a Russian nun in Paris. And she's actually been canonized as a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Church. And she was eventually uh, a freedom fighter actually in World War II, but she was eventually martyred in a concentration camp. I want to read to you what she says about the church and how the church is called to be. She says this, she says, it would be a great lie to tell those who are searching, go to church because there you will find peace. She says the opposite is true actually. She says, the church tells those who are at peace and asleep, um, go to church and there you will find the real anguish for your sin and the world's sin. There you will feel insatiable hunger for Christ's truth. There, instead of becoming lukewarm, you will be set on fire. Instead of being pacified, you'll become alarmed. Instead of learning the wisdom of this world, you'll become fools for Christ. And I read that quote today. Because I believe that's actually what Jesus will do for us here today as we explore his actions in the temple. I believe that today we are not going to be pacified. We might even become alarmed. We might be actually challenged. We might be convicted. Or as Mother Maria puts it, that when we really go to church and when we really understand what Jesus is doing, there instead of becoming lukewarm, you'll be set on fire. Instead of being pacified, you'll be alarmed. And I bring this up because today that might just happen. Because what we're going to notice here today in the passage that we're going to explore, I want to be upfront with this, is that Jesus here is going to overturn any religious institution or authority that oppresses, exploits, and excludes others. That King Jesus has no time for that. That that's not what religion is about. That's not what following God is about. And here Jesus, we're going to see in his most direct, political, powerful, challenging actions and symbols um, than any other part of the gospel, I really do believe. So today we're going to be exploring Jesus' very next actions for where we left off last week. Last week we noticed how Jesus entered into Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. And today he's really going to show that he is a radical king, a revolutionary king, one who is there to overthrow and overturn how things have been. And so I want to pick up the story exactly where we left off, but this time in the book of Mark, seeing what happens right after Jesus uh, enters into Jerusalem. So right after the uh, triumphal entry, this is what we read. It says, so Jesus came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And this is where all the action is going to be today. It's going to be in the temple and what is going on there. And after looking around carefully at everything, it says he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. So here's what happens. Jesus arrives into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry and he goes into the temple. And notice, what does it say? It says, after looking around carefully at everything, he left. So what's he doing? to use maybe colloquial language, he's scoping out the place. That's what he is doing. He is planning his next move. He is getting ready for his next move. But it's late in the afternoon. There aren't as many people there. It's not the right time. So he leaves and goes back to Bethany, his home base, to begin to prepare for his next action, which will be when he enters into the temple, which will be where he confronts the ruling religious leaders and elites of the day. And this is going to be the most direct, challenging action of Jesus that most scholars believe is when Jesus does what he does next, that gets him killed. But before we can explore Jesus' next actions, I want to explore what the temple actually means. Because it's clear that Jesus goes into Jerusalem and then went into the temple. And this is really where all the action is. But for many of us, we aren't familiar with what the temple actually means and symbolizes. So I want to explain that before we dive deeper into Jesus' next actions. So the first two things I want to talk about with the temple are just this. I want to talk about what the temple represents, like physically and also symbolically and psychologically. 
So physically, the temple uh, would have been a massive, amazing, awestruck kind of a building and a piece of construction in the ancient day. Remember, most people in that day and age were not familiar with massive skyscrapers, right? So the temple would have likely been the most large and just awe-inspiring building they have ever seen. So what would happen is, is when you're going up to the temple, you would actually feel this sense of transcendence, of awe, of maybe you can put it this way, like holy fear. That's what it would induce within people, this sense of awe, a really, really big, imposing structure. But not only was the temple physically imposing, the temple was also psychologically and spiritually imposing as well. The temple was really the place where God dwelt. That while for sure every Jewish person believed that God was everywhere, the temple was his chosen manifestation. The temple was like the footstool to his heavenly realm. Right? So this is like a place of extreme religious symbolic uh, meaning and actuality for the people. But not only then is it the center of a Jewish person's religious life, Follow with me. This is what we often miss. It was also the center of their economic life, of their political life, of their uh, judicial life, that really the temple was the center of everything. To use modern day images, really, that the temple would be like the White House, the Pentagon, Wall Street, Fort Knox, the Capitol Building, and the Supreme Court all rolled up into one place. That's what it would be like. And this is what it was for the people. It was really the center of everything. And I mentioned there Fort Knox, and we could use, you know, Canadian, um, you know, equivalents as well, but most people wouldn't know, I don't think, those as well. But this is true, actually, that the temple was actually the center of their economic and commercial life as well. This is something we tend to forget. So in that day and age, what we know is that Jewish people were called to actually tie towards the temple. And this would include everyone in Israel, but also all the Jewish people outside of Israel, living in what was called the diaspora. So there would be all of this money flowing into the temple, actually. And what was meant to happen then was the money that would flow into the temple was meant to then flow out as an act of blessing on those who are poor and exploited and needed help. But what we know is that wasn't happening. And instead what was going in is all that money was flowing into the temple and it was sitting there and causing those who ran the temple to just become more and more wealthy and wealthy and wealthy. It was just extremely increasing not only their wealth and power, but also their distance from the regular people. We know this from not only the stories of Jesus, but also archaeology as well. As we've actually studied the city of uh, Jerusalem, what we have come to see is that the high priest's home, guess this, that the high priest's home was 6,500 square feet large. That is massive by our own days and age standards, and it was obscene by theirs. That's the level of wealth and grandeur that these people had. On top of that, what the high priests and the priests did then was they built something that was called the Royal Bridge. This was a bridge from where they lived to the temple so that they didn't have to mix with regular and ordinary and everyday people. The level of wealth was extreme within the temple. We have to get this. In fact, uh, some archaeological studies have pointed out that bottles of wine that they've excavated from the high priest's home, that these would cost upwards of $1,000 in today's day and uh, you know, money. Like, that's incredible. And it certainly puts to shame the, I don't know, the $16 bottle of wine that Chris and I often drink from having a poem of back on the right? Like this is the level of wealth that was in the temple. And we have to have this understanding to realize that the temple was really the center of their economic, political, judicial life. It was the center of everything. And here's why this really matters, okay? For us to really understand Jesus's next move, to understand his actions, right? Is that whoever controlled the temple controlled Israel. Let me say that again. Because okay? this matters immensely. That whoever was in control of the temple, whoever ran that, whoever was in charge of that, they really then ran the rest of Israel. They were in charge of like everything. This is why the temple is so central. And so we have to kind of understand this. And what I want to kind of go is one layer deeper actually with this. And I want to ask an obvious question then. If whoever ran the temple really ran Israel, who is in charge of the temple right now? This isn't a trick question. In Jesus' day and age, who ran it? 
It was the priest, the high priest, and all of that, right? It was the ruling leaders and officials, all of that. Yeah, yeah. And I want to ask him one question a little bit deeper than this. What gave, what gave those high priests and the priests their authority to then run the temple and also to then therefore run all of Israel? We might want to say that they were born into the priestly caste, and that is true, but really, I want to follow with me. Their authority came from their ability to interpret, know, and authorize the ways of God. That's where their authority was really bound. It was in their ability to interpret, to know, and to authorize the ways of God. That priests knew the Torah and could say how God required us to live. That is where their authority really lies. But then follow with me then. Follow with me. If their authority actually lies in the text and the ability to actually uh, interpret it well, when, when a man comes from Galilee, when a man comes from like this backwater, no place town, when a man comes who has some dubious parentage, right? When a man comes who hasn't been a part of their school, has been trained in their ways, when he comes and demonstrates greater authority in the text and scripture, right? And I'm talking about Jesus here. What we must understand is that this is a direct challenge to the priests, the ruling classes, authority. This is why Mark actually begins his gospel um, with these words. I want to read from Mark 1, actually. And this is really, this should be quite obvious to many of us. Actually, it says this. And the people were amazed at his teaching, speaking of Jesus, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. So when Jesus shows up and shows that he has better mastery of the scriptures, this is a direct challenge to the ruling classes. And this is a challenge of their power, of really the ability to not only run the temple, but therefore all of, of Israel. Eisenberg, a scholar, puts it this way in academic scholarly language. He says, a fixed written scripture requires interpretation. The authority to interpret was disputed by the various groups. And it is no wonder for those who have the authority to interpret it have the closest possible relation to the power of God. A position which may be and was translated into enormous economical and political power. What he's saying there in academic and scholarly language is just this. Whoever could show that they mastered the scriptures essentially ran Israel. And Jesus has been showing up the ruling priests and the leaders all over Israel, all throughout the countryside over these past you know, number of years or weeks or whatever it may be. Right? And now what Jesus is doing, he's going into the temple, their source of authority, their space, their home turf, and he's going to show them up there. So with all this understanding of what the temple is and how it was really the center of everything, let's dive into what Jesus does next. I want to read um, just the uh, very next verse. It says this, the following the next morning, the following next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to it to see if he could find any figs, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now, this may seem like a little bit of an odd passage. This might seem a little bit unconnected to the temple, but this is actually directly connected to the temple. And what is going on here is really an act of foreshadowing that Jesus is going to come with judgment and overturning and actually um, disrupting all that's going on. In that day and age, figs were actually a symbol of peace and prosperity in the golden age of Israel. That that's what figs were. And so when there was a picture of a fig tree in bloom and ready with fruit and all of that, that was a symbol that Yahweh was with the people. But when there is a barren fig tree, that is a symbol that Yahweh is against the people, that wrath and judgment is coming. And so when Jesus says this, when the text says that this isn't the time for figs, he's not just talking about like figs and fruit. That's not what's going on here. It's really talking about revealing what is going on in um, the relation of Israel and with God. Now, what we sometimes miss in this is because in Greek, there are two words actually for time. One is called chronos and one is called kairos. 
Uh, Kronos is one we might be familiar with. This is like chronology. This is like linear, standard, you know, everyday, moment by moment, minute by minute time. Kairos is different though. Kairos is like this revealing kind of time, this time that is pregnant with meaning, this time that is really different and a deep kind of time. And here when Jesus, uh, when the text says actually that it wasn't the time for fruit, it's that Kairos time. So what's going on here is just really simple, is that when Jesus says that the fig tree is not bearing fruit, when he curses it, when he says wither and die, what he is saying really is that Israel has not been faithful and that there is a time of judgment that is coming. And then Jesus will show this very much in his very next actions when he enters into the temple. Let's read what happens. It says this, and when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple. He goes directly there. This is purposeful. This is revolutionary. This is radical. This is strategic and intentional. It says this, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, I honestly do not believe I can overstate how powerful and strong and important these small, short three verses really are. That this is what all scholars believe gets Jesus killed. This is where a direct political challenge to the ruling authorities of the day. And I want to work through it seriously and deeply. And so what we're going to see is four things, really. That first, that Jesus drives out those who are buying and selling. Second, Jesus overturns the tables of the money uh, changers and the seats of those selling. Then Jesus actually stops the temple from functioning as a marketplace. And finally, Jesus teaches them. And I want to walk through each of these things deeply today to understand what it is that's going on and what it is that Jesus' actions are telling and revealing even for us here today. So the first thing I want to comment on is really the driving out of those who are buying and selling. And I think, at least when I've heard this passage often preached, it's often preached from the point of view that Jesus was uncomfortable with money and religion being tied together or being in the same kind of room or whatever. But honestly, that's just, that's just, in some ways, it's ridiculous and not true. In our modern day world, we have an uncomfortable reality with money and religion being tied together. But that is not true in an ancient world. This was actually totally normal. Remember, the temple was actually the center of economic life. And there's really good arguments for why there should be people there buying and selling for sacrifices, actually. Because if you were a traveler, a pilgrim to Jerusalem and to the temple, what you don't want to have to do is to drag along like a goat or a bull all these you know, hundreds of miles there. What you want to do is to arrive there and be able to purchase a sacrifice. So the reason that Jesus is overturning this and being so frustrated and so angry and so upset with this isn't because there is money in the temple. Instead, it's something deeper than that. So follow with me. Jesus, it says um, in, the, in the text, it says that he entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. So let's just kind of dive into this a little bit deeper. What does Jesus do? He drives out people who are buying and selling animals, right? For what? For sacrifices, right? That's what he is doing. So follow with me. In essence, what Jesus is doing is he is stopping the entire sacrificial system. That's what's going on. Jesus is not upset that animals are being uh, uh, sold in the temple. That is not what it is at all. Instead, by Jesus driving away all the animals, what he is doing is putting a stop to the sacrificial system, to all that is going on, to the everyday activity of the temple. So let's just ask some obvious questions. Who controls the sacrificial system that Jesus has just stopped? The ruling elites, right? The religious leaders, right? The priests, right? Who also controls all the buying and selling? 
the ruling elites, the leaders, and the priests. So with one move, Jesus has directly challenged and just provoked the ruling kind of uh, religious leaders and elites and priests of the day and age. He has stopped the temple from doing what it's normally meant to do. He has put a halt to everything. This is just pure provocation on Jesus' part. We are so used to thinking of Jesus as meek and mild, but in this text, we see anything but that. He is actually directly challenging the ruling kind of religious leaders. That's what he is doing. And he's putting a stop to not only their commerce and their money, but also the source of their power, the sacrificial system and the authority that they have to actually continue with it. All right, so Jesus stops this. And then let's see what happens next. It says next that Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers and those selling doves. Again, if we can get over our head uh, this idea that money is dirty or bad or whatever or shouldn't be a part of religious reality or of life, uh, we can read this passage better. Sometimes we think that Jesus is upset with people for changing money. That is untrue and also semi-ridiculous. Because really, what is going on here is we need people to actually change money in that day and age. People will be coming from all over the world and you need a special type of currency to use in the temple. So you need money changers for the temple to function. So yet again, Jesus is stopping the functioning of the temple. But there's something actually that's a bit more unique. What does the text say? It was pretty clear. It says actually they overturns the tables for the doves as well. Now what we know, now what we know historically is that this is making a real clear symbolic act for what Jesus is against. That doves were the sacrifice of the poor. That's what we know for sure. You can go read this in Leviticus 12, 14, and 15 actually. That the only people who ever bought doves were the people on the lowest social class, the most marginalized, the most outcast, the most exploited. So we have the poor, we would have women, we have lepers. These are the only people who ever purchased doves. And what we know actually is that the temple in that day and age was gouging and exploiting the poor. We know this unquestionably true. So much so that Paul's teacher, actually, what we know is just a few years after this incident here in the temple, he actually in the Sanhedrin makes a big deal of the fact that the poor are being gouged. And what we know is that he says that we need to actually reduce the price of doves. That the price of doves in his day and age went from one gold dinar to one silver dinar. Which I know means virtually nothing for us today. But here's what this is in today's terms. That's a price reduction of 99%. Which means it was like they were selling something at $100 and it went to $1. That's how much the temple was exploiting and gouging the poor. But notice the difference between Paul's teacher and his action and his um, uh, just really being angry and upset about the gouging and Jesus. Jesus doesn't want there to be a correct price reduction. Jesus says the entire thing needs to go. That's what his actions do. He overturns the tables. And that term there, overturns, is actually a Greek term called katatrophe. And what it literally means is to destroy. That's what it means. It's a strong, it's a fierce word. It is a really a forceful word. And so what we see here really, really clearly is that Jesus overturns, destroys, or gets rid of Really, anything that is oppressing and exploiting the poor and the lowest classes. That's what his actions here are telling us. That when he overturns it, when he throws it, when he gets rid of it, he says no more to the system that is oppressing the poor and exploiting them. And this entire sacrificial system needs to be done. That's what these actions are, are really demonstrating. And this is seen actually in the very next thing that we read as well. The next thing that happens is it says this, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Now, honestly, I have no idea how Jesus did this. And in many ways, in some ways, like, I honestly don't even care. The text doesn't tell us how he did it. What the text is interested in telling us is that Jesus stopped the functioning of the temple. 
All of a sudden, the center of economic life of Israel was ground to a halt. All of a sudden, people who thought they were in charge of everything, who were nice and cozy in their power and their privilege and their wealth were disrupted and someone showed up on the scene, Jesus, and says, no, here's how things actually are meant to be. Jesus disrupts everything. And you can imagine all of the angst and the anger of the ruling elites and the uh, ruling religious leaders. This is disturbing them at a deep, deep level. And not only do Jesus' actions demonstrate that, first of all, he's against anything that oppresses, exploits, and excludes others, his words, oh, his words are even stronger. Let's see what he says next, okay? So Jesus then says to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called the house of prayer for all nations. But you, you have turned it into a den of thieves. And I'm telling you, the moment that Jesus said that, there is like a pin drop in the entire temple. This is a direct challenge to the ruling religious leaders. He is actually just calling them out. There is nothing that's been said so strong and so negative towards them. And with these small, two short verses, what Jesus does is shows that he is the master teacher, that he is the only one who can truly interpret scripture. And he shows that he is the authority to really be leading all of Israel. That's what's going on here. And Jesus, in two small verses, what he does is he quotes the two big kind of prophets in the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah and he quotes Jeremiah. He quotes Isaiah to remind people what the temple was meant to be. And then he quotes Jeremiah to tell people what the temple was turned into. So let's first understand the passage that he quotes in Isaiah. And here when he says this, he says, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What this is meant to be is quoting the prophet Isaiah how the temple was meant to be a space of welcome for all people, for all tribes, for all tongues, for all nations, for the socially outcast, the marginalized, the exploited, to be welcomed in. This is what this verse is about. Let me read to you from Isaiah, actually. And here's what uh, Isaiah, the prophet, um, and the Lord says. And it says this. God says, I will bless the foreigners, and I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. And I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples, for everyone. It's about welcome. It's about inclusion. It is about diversity. It says this, for the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring back others too besides my people of Israel. So Jesus quotes Isaiah reminding all the people and all the religious rulers and everybody is there in the center of power of Israel. He reminds them of what the temple is meant to be. It's about inclusion and it's about community. That's what the temple is meant to be. A space of prayer for all people, for all nations, a place of welcome where people can come, not where they are exploited, not where they are oppressed, not where they are marginalized. Right? This is what Jesus is getting at. This is about inclusion and this is about community. So if you have ever wondered why here we emphasize so often diversity, grace, welcome, and inclusion. It's because of Jesus, and he does. So he reminds the people of what the temple is meant to be. And then, with the prophet Jeremiah, he actually reveals what the temple has become. And this, this is kind of like a gut punch. He says this. He says, um, he says you have turned my, my uh, temple into a den of thieves. Now, I think we often miss interpret this passage again. That when we think about this passage, and the way I've often actually heard it preached, is that Jesus is against people in the temple exploiting and robbing the poor. And while that is clearly happening, we know that because of some of the price gouging and all of that, that is not actually what Jesus is getting at. Because follow with me, follow with me. When he quotes this passage in Jeremiah, and let me read it to you, he says, don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. Let me just ask you a question. Is the den of thieves 
where people go to rob people or the people go to hide from people that they've robbed. Right? It's clearly the second, right? That a den of thieves is not where thieves go to rob people. A den of thieves is where people go to hide after they've robbed someone. It's a place where they go to rest. It's a place that conceals their crimes. So when Jesus here calls the temple a den of thieves, this is what he is doing. He is saying to the religious ruling leaders and authorities, he is saying you are using the temple as a place to excuse your predatory, your power hungry and your oppressive policies and it's wrong and it's evil and that he is going to curse it and over throw it and get rid of it that's what's going on when Jesus names this verse what he is not saying is that the temple is a space that people are being stolen from instead what he's highlighting is something much much worse what he is highlighting is the fact that people are using faulty biblical interpretation faulty tradition and faulty authority to actually hide and excuse their bad behavior that's what's going on here and that for Jesus for Jesus, he is about justice, he is about inclusion, and he is about welcome. That's what the temple is meant to be. And that here, the religious ruling elites and elites, what they are doing is they're missing the entire point. And so Jesus is challenging them. Jesus is directly calling them out. Jesus really, in many ways, is disturbing them. That's what's going on. So really, what I think we see here in this passage, if we take it seriously, is that King Jesus, and I think that this passage really does reveal Jesus as king, that King Jesus has no time for corrupt religious institutions who use faulty theology, tradition, and false biblical interpretation to exclude hate, oppression, and exploitation. That's what's going on here. Jesus sees how the religious ruling leaders are exploiting the poor. He overturns it. He stops the entire system and he says no to it. He says no more using this temple as a shield for your fake authority and instead, instead, the temple is to be a space of inclusion and prayer and welcome. That's what's going on. And so, as you might imagine, knowing all this about the temple, knowing all that's going on, when Jesus does this, you can maybe then understand the next reaction of the people. It says this, when the leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they instantly began plotting how to kill him. Right, that's a reaction. This fact that Jesus is for the poor and the marginalized and the outcasts, this fact that the wealthy power who hide behind false biblical authority and interpretation, that those people who do that, that Jesus is here to overthrow them, this fact makes them so uncomfortable, so angry that the only way that they can deal with it is to choose to kill Jesus. But listen to this. But they were unable to at this moment. Why? Because the text tells us. Because they were, but they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. Remember, the person who controls the teaching, controls the temple, controls Israel. And Jesus here has shown that he is the true author and interpreter of scripture. And he shows what the temple is meant to be and how it got turned into something that it isn't and how he is against it and how he will overturn it. So they are unable to do anything. That's what ends up happening. We finish off this section with this. It says the next day, the next morning, as they passed by the fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Because Jesus is against any religious institution that oppresses, exploits, and really excludes others. And his uh, reaction to it is to have it wither and die. That's what that is pointing at. So what does this all mean for us today? Because I know in many ways, we've covered a lot actually today. We've gone into history. We've gone into psychology. There's just been a lot that we've covered. What does this mean for us? Well, one thing I do want to just name absolutely clearly is that while Jesus here is so unequivocally, clearly standing against the religious institution of his day, run by corrupt religious uh, authorities, 
I want to be really, really clear here that Jesus, while he is standing against the temple and the ruling religious authorities, he is not against the Jewish people, the Jewish faith, or anything like that. I think we just need to be so, so clear with that. Um, that while Jesus is clearly overturning things and uh, destroying things, and even, we can use stronger language, cursing things, right? He does this with the fig tree. He is not in any way against uh, Judaism or the Jewish people. We just can't miss this fact. Instead, what Jesus is against, what Jesus is against, or maybe I put it this way, what King Jesus is against is any religious institution or authority that oppresses, exploits, and excludes. That's what King Jesus is against. And that's actually my main point today, that if we take this passage incredibly seriously, and I think we should, that all the symbolic action and then all that Jesus says makes it unquestionably clear that King Jesus has no time for religious institutions or authorities that are corrupt and that exclude and that oppress and that do not um, welcome people in. That's what Jesus is really clearly about here. Jesus goes to the temple and he overturns the tables for the poor and says no more to this exploitation. He stops the entire sacrificial system and he just directly calls out the religious leaders and authorities and say, you are hiding behind fake and false biblical authority. That's what he says, right? Essentially, you've made this a den of thieves. This is the place you go to hide all your wealth. This is the place you go to hide from the real accountability that you need to be um, dealt with. And then Jesus makes it absolutely clear that he will deal with it by cursing and ultimately seeing the fig tree wither and die. So what does this mean for us all today? Because I know that in many ways, this is heavy. This is actually, I actually do believe we should feel some conviction about this. Because maybe I can just put it this way. I think the fact that King Jesus stands against any religious institution that oppresses, that exploits and excludes has something to say to the church in 2021. Of course this does. This must, right? That this must mean something for us here today. The question is, is then what does it mean for us today? How do we apply it? Well, today I want to talk and give a strong and direct challenge, especially to those of you who are followers of Jesus. That today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe what I would like to challenge you to do is to really to accept Jesus, to choose to follow him, to make him Lord, to make the one who stands on the side of the oppressed and marginalized your king. I would like to invite you to that. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I think that what we need to do is that we need to actually sit and reflect on this passage deeper. I think what we are called to do, especially any of us who have any power, position, or privilege, and that certainly includes myself, is what we need to do is we need to reflect and ask this question. Are there any ways, are there any ways personally or corporately that we are excluding those who God wants to welcome in? I think that's the challenge of this passage. We see Jesus so clearly standing on the side of the poor, overturning and stopping anything that is excluding them and welcoming them in, anyone who is marginalized and oppressed. So I think we need to ask that question. Are we in any ways, either personally or corporately, actually um, excluding those God is seeking to welcome in? I think this is a question that every single Christian needs to ask, that every single follower of Jesus needs to ask. Are we actually excluding someone that God wants to welcome in? Are we participating in any system of oppression or marginalization of someone that God wants to welcome in? Are we in any way missing the point like the religious leaders and ruling authorities? Because when we read this passage, if we do not place ourselves in their position, we are reading it wrongly. We need to be open to the fact, can I just say this, that King Jesus gets the right to correct his followers. Anyone want to say amen to that? 
that King Jesus gets the right to correct his followers, which means today we should be asking the question, what would Jesus change in our lives? What would he correct? What would he overturn and get rid of? What would he destroy and curse and say this needs to be removed? Is there any areas of our lives where we are totally missing the point and instead of being on the side of Jesus, of welcoming an inclusion, that we are on the side of the ruling religious authorities and leaders and missing the point. And we are exploiting, oppressing, or excluding those that God wants to welcome in, that God wants to bring in, that God wants to say, you can find joy here, and that this house is a house of prayer for all nations. I have to tell you, personally, personally, that, that, that hit home for me. Because this isn't a shocker for anyone, but I kind of like lead in some way, shape, or form a religious institution. So when I was practicing and preparing and really just listening and learning about this sermon, about this passage, Jesus spoke to me with this. Some of the questions I started asking were, is there anything we're doing here at Bethany that is excluding people God wants to bring in? Is there anything that we are participating here that we are excusing maybe bad behavior with faulty biblical interpretation like the ruling religious leaders that is actually, ex actually excusing like our hate or prejudice or hurt or whatever? I started to ask questions, maybe even a better one is, if Jesus showed up today, what would he overturn? What would he drive out? What would he stop? What would he curse or destroy? Because I think for many of us and myself included, I love to think of Jesus as the one who stands alongside me and lifts me up, and he does. But Jesus is also a radical king who challenges and does have the authority to correct his followers. And the real shocking part of this passage is that there were really likely good religious leaders and authorities and people who were zealously following God, and yet they were missing the point and standing actually against God. That's what this passage shows us. So I think the real challenge for us, and here's my challenge for you and for me and for all of us really to consider um, here today, is that when it comes to this passage, here's what I want to invite you to do. To just take time to ask Jesus to name, reveal, or challenge any area that needs to be corrected in your life. I think that's the right response to this. For us not to assume uh, that we're good, perfect, and put together, but for us to assume that Jesus actually might have a word of correction to us. So here's my challenge for you and my challenge for me this week. Would you find time, and I'm going to be really specific, would you find time today and to sit and ask that question, Jesus, what would you correct in my life? Jesus, what would you overturn in my life? Jesus, are there areas where I am a part of excluding oppression or exploitation that need to be named and changed and repented from? Because guess what? This is Lent. And Lent is a time where we ask these questions, where we don't shy away from sacrifice and confession and reflection and repentance. So today, today my main point is just really simple, that King Jesus, that King Jesus is against any uh, religious institution that is about exploitation, oppression, and exclusion. That King Jesus overturns that. King, King Jesus gets rid of that. That King Jesus is about a temple that is for all people, for all nations to be welcomed in. So the question is, is are you living that in your life? I want to invite you to spend time with Jesus and let him speak to you. Because as I began this very sermon with, this is just true. It would be a great lie to tell those who are searching, go to church, because there you will find peace. The opposite is true. The church tells those who are at peace and asleep, go to church, because there, there you will feel real anguish for your sin and the world's sin. There you will feel insatiable hunger for Christ's truth. There, instead of becoming lukewarm, you'll be set on fire. Instead of being pacified, you'll become alarmed. Instead of learning the wisdom of this world, you'll become fools for Christ. So may that be true in our lives today. 
May we become alarmed at our own sin and the sin of the world. And may we invite Jesus to name and to reveal and to ultimately to change whatever is in our life that doesn't look like him. Today, I believe that's the right response to a story about Jesus overturning everything is to sit and to ask, dear Lord, dear King, what might you change in my life? Let's pray. God, I ask. I ask, would you give us courage to actually sit with you? I ask, would you give us courage to really be with you and to invite you to really, Lord, would you name anything in our lives that needs to be changed, overturned, that is actually working against what you are trying to do? Oh, Father, I pray, would you give us real discernment? Would you give us clarity to hear the voice of your spirit speaking to us? God, would you not have us turn away from this moment, but instead to enter in and the Lord to look at our lives and to say, God, what would you have us do? What would you have us change? Because you are king, you are Lord, and you are savior, and we should come under allegiance to you. And I just pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to close today, I want to invite you to really spend some time thinking and praying about those themes that we've just explored, about Jesus as king, about how he is a radical and really overturns so much. So as we sing this next song together, I want to invite you to just think about him. Think about what he might be inviting you to change or to really realize within your life. And let's make sure that we follow him with our lives because it is true that Jesus is king.